Welcome to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. Conversations about diversity, race, and racism in the fraternity and sorority community have been happening for some time now. For as long as I've been involved in the industry, these conversations have been happening, but with a few notable exceptions, they've been on the periphery pushed aside in favor of conversations about quote-unquote more important topics like hazing or sexual assault. All this changed a few weeks ago. The killing of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and others has sparked a racial reckoning in America. The fraternity and sorority community has not been exempt from that reckoning. What started as a series of statements in support of Black Lives Matter has turned into a real conversation about the racism that has long been at the core of the fraternity and sorority experience. And while these conversations and statements have happened before in the wake of national tragedies, this time it really feels different. Organizations are finally acknowledging their history of racism. We are finally examining the structures and systems that perpetuate that racism in our organizations. Real change is starting to happen. Today's conversation will provide some context around some of the changes we're seeing in our industry. I first met Lawrence Ross at an AFA annual meeting several years ago, but we'd interacted on social media for quite a while before actually meeting. What started as a cordial professional relationship has turned into a genuine friendship, which is comical to some because, on the surface, a black dude with dreads from L.A. and a white dude who grew up on a farm in rural East Tennessee couldn't be more different. But as Lawrence and I got to know one another over the years, we've come to understand that we have a lot of things in common. We're both history nerds. We're both into bourbon. We're both fans of underachieving college football programs. Our friendship really is a testament to not judging books by their covers. My conversation with Lawrence was recorded back in March, at the height of the coronavirus lockdown and before the death of George Floyd and others sparked outrage across the globe, but our conversation provides a lot of context about some of the conversations we see happening across the fraternity and sorority industry today. We cover a lot of topics, the history of black Greek letter groups, brother and sisterhood and culturally based groups, and racism generally within the fraternity and sorority community. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and I'm thrilled to welcome Lawrence to the podcast today. Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. How are things in L.A.? Well, quiet, <laughs> I mean, for the most part. Uh, I mean, it, it's actually, it, when, we, when the quarantine first began, it was kind of the streets are quiet. Then now people are getting itchy, and it's starting to drive a little bit more. Uh, uh, needing to get out of the house yeah without I mean, coming into physical contact with any strangers or really no, that's what that people matter. are really making sure to do <laughs> so for those of you who don't know lawrence uh lawrence is the author of a book called the divine nine a history of black greek letter organizations uh lawrence is a, a good friend that i've gotten to know over the last several years through uh, a few professional associations some people may know Lawrence just through uh, my Facebook page. Uh, Lawrence and I are both active social media folks, and I always joke that my, my Facebook is really the crossroads of America because I've got like all my super conservative friends and family from where I grew up, and then I've got all my liberal, progressive higher education friends, and, and no good Facebook post is considered good unless it ends with Lawrence in an argument with one of my family members. And so I'm, I'm really glad... 
I'm really glad that now people are going to be able to put at least a, a voice with the, the, the face and the name that they see on Facebook all the time. It is hilarious when I see a gentry at the end. I'm like, oh, it's Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm excited to have you on. You've been a big fan of your work. If you've not read The Divine Nine and you're working with uh, fraternities and sororities on campus, it, it really should be required reading for everyone because it gives such a great historical context for not only how these organizations came to be, but really their growth and proliferation throughout the year. So, uh, you know, Lawrence, start us off. What got you interested in writing the book, uh, the history of MPHC organizations? Obviously, you're a member of, of one of those groups, Alpha Phi Alpha, but, but what was your inspiration to do the book and, and, and kind of what prepared you to take that project on? Sure, sure. So uh, as you noted, I've been a brother of Alpha Phi Alpha since I was 19. I was a, a second semester freshman at Berkeley when I, when I was initiated. So I've been a brother all, literally all my life. And I began, I was a writer, actually I began as an editor, a managing, managing editor of a hip hop magazine back in 1995. And so I was doing a whole bunch. I mean, long form articles, doing, you know, managing the, the whole magazine. And about two years after that, I began working as a reporter for a newspaper. And the, the, the reason why I wrote the book was based upon uh, one weekend. Uh, I was basically at home. And this is with, I was watching C-SPAN. If you know me, that's pretty <laughs> Go far, figure. of course. Um, and I was watching C-SPAN. And it was before C-SPAN had book TV. Uh, they had a 72 hours of the book industry. And so I'm sitting up there just watching it, watching it. I'm like, oh, great. I'm learning all the things about, you know, getting a, an, uh, an agent or how the book proposal goes and things like that. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I really want to write a book on history. Uh, and I didn't know particularly what I wanted to do. So I looked on the bookshelf and, then, you know, you see all the different things that you are interested in. And I saw my Alpha Phi Alpha history book and I saw my wife's Delta uh, Sigma Theta history book. And I began thinking, I was like, why has there ever been a book that actually consolidated all the history for all the organizations? And one of the things I began thinking about was that every time a person had come up to me talking about, you know, they were interested in Alpha or, you know, my, you know, friends of mine who were interested in other organizations, they would always come up and say, but there's no place to find any, you know, information. And, you know, of course, this is kind of pre, you know, nascent internet, you know, in terms of the world, quote, unquote, World Wide Web at the time as we used to talk about it. But um, I began thinking about it, and one of my friends is a guy named Michael Datcher, who I went to uh, Berkeley with. And uh, Michael had just sold a book and called Raising Fences. And uh, he had just sold a book, and he was, I was like, hey, Michael, I'm interested in writing a book about uh, fraternities and sororities. And he was like, oh, fantastic. And he was like, oh, buy this book called The Writer's Market. And I was like, okay, great. So I write, you know, get the book, Writer's Market, and I go through it, and I find this, um, you know, this is actually insane how this actually happened. But uh, I find this one agent, and her name is Deja Knight, and I say, hey, I'm going to write a query letter to her. This is the type of book I'm interested in writing. Uh, would you be interested? And she writes me back, and she says, yes, I would. Now, that is not how it normally happens, right? <laughs> normally, 99% of the time, you get rejected by agents, right? I got on the first shot, right? And so what happened is that I write a book proposal, um, knew pretty much what the book I wanted to write uh, and, and sent it to her. And the book actually, she goes to shop it. And the book, the very first time she shops it, uh, we get one offer from a really, I think it was Henry Holt, 
It might have been, you know, not small, but, you know, kind of, you know. And Henry Holt, the note they gave us back was, yeah, we're interested in, but we don't understand why people would be interested in reading a book about fraternities and sororities after they graduated from college, which told me they don't really understand the book. And so she decided a week after that, she said, let me go back to New York. She was based in Atlanta. Let me go back to New York and I'm gonna shop it again. And that's when it got, got over to a woman named Karen Thomas. And Karen Thomas uh, was one of the five or six black uh, editors of a major publishing house. And she got it on a Friday and she sent us an email saying, don't shop it to anyone else. I'll give you an offer on Monday. And the reason why Karen ate it up was because Karen is an AKA. Immediately understood. Yeah. And, uh, and so only, Karen's only requirement was that uh, there was a picture of AKA on the, on the front cover. <laughs> I was like, y'all have, do whatever you want. So, uh, and that's, the, that's pretty much the story. And I basically started researching. Whew, it start, it put, took about a good two years of, of researching. And I said, you know, and I had all the cooperation with all nine organizations. Uh, they, a lot of times they would ask me, like, why would anybody be interested in this? And I was like, yeah, I think there's interest. And it was like a little bit like herding cats. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it was 150,000 words, which if you're a writer, you understand is insane. That's I will never, ever write a book that large. So was your background and training in journalism or history or, or both? So my degree is in history. Okay. And my training is in, in uh, journalism. My bachelor's is in history. I have an MFA in, in, in screenwriting. But uh, so it's a combination of those two things. Um, I, but I pretty much approached it um, like a journalist. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, I think journalism, particularly for writing books, is predominantly, I mean, probably the best place that you, I mean, it's kind of an obvious thing, but it's probably the best place, particularly for nonfiction. And because you've basically always been about kind of going down rabbit holes and understanding what is really good and what is really not good for telling the narrative. Um, oftentimes when you have history, uh, folks, which I am a really big history nut. Um, what you can do is you can kind of get dense within the history. It is, it is one thing to say, for example, the difference between an academic book and a mainstream uh, book. A lot of times with academic books, that is what is required. Uh, an academic book requires you go into those rabbit holes and you know, go as dense as possible. Perfectly fine. But my book is designed for the uh, for for mainstream audiences for the people who have no understanding need to have an understanding and don't need a deep uh, deep dive background it's kind of a voice that's right in the middle awesome what obviously you knew a lot about your own organization prior to this project right you you'd right. read the history of alpha um and, and maybe you know knew a little bit about delta with with the other book there on the bookshelf right right doing the research for this book were, were there things you learned that really surprised you um, you know what the funny thing that surprised me is that when you when you're in a member, particularly if you're an alpha, right? If you're an alpha, you think the world revolves around alpha, <laughs> you know, and, and you've met enough alphas to know that this is kind of how we operate, uh, particularly being the first. But one of the very first things I recognized was that everyone else has a Genesis story. Mm -hmm. And the Genesis story does not necessarily include mentioning Alpha by Alpha as any type of anything. And so which I found hilariously funny, not in terms of an insult against Alpha Alpha or that Alpha needs to be mentioned, but the dynamics of groups. Um, and, and, and it's the reason why I say when it comes to the nine organizations, I literally consider each nine of each one of the organizations to be heroic um, in that they each had a vision and they each were able to manifest that vision. 
And we tend sometimes take it for granted that, you know, a kappa alpha psi, omega psi, phi, pi beta sigma, or iota phi theta, and, and alpha kappa alpha delta sigma theta, sigma gamma rho, and zeta phi beta, that they exist. And there's no reason that you have to exist. There have been plenty of organizations that have died or um, gone through the depression and, and faded away. Um, and what surprised me was the resilience of these men and women who made a decision to say, I am not just getting a college education for myself. I want to do something that has a greater meaning. And, you know, every fraternity says that. But I think in particular when it comes to uh, fraternities and sororities within the MPAC, we really take pride in the fact that we actually do it. And, um, and I, I think it was a sense of pride that kind of was the thing that surprised me beyond alpha that's the, the, that I feel in every other organization. So I'm a, I'm a context guy. Anytime I've, I've done StrengthsQuest a couple of times and contextual is always my number one thing. And so I love the context that history can provide, uh, which is probably why I'm also kind of a history nerd like yourself. Give us some context around what was going on in American society generally and on college campuses specifically when these black Greek letter organizations began forming in the, in the early 1900s? Beautiful. So, so if you even just go back to kind of the formation of Panhellenic and, and IFC organizations, you kind of have two different uh, eras. You have the pre-Civil uh, pre War era with IFC organizing, and then you have the post-Civil War um, organizing of, of fraternities and women's fraternities, which we would transition to be to, to, to sororities. Um, so you're starting to see the liberalization of college campuses in the late part of the 19th century. Uh, college is also starting to transition from being a place where it's a, the, 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 the only place for people are basically white, you know, Protestant men of means. Um, and it's starting to be a place to where um, Americans of all stripes, whether or not you're an immigrant, whether or not you are Jewish, whether or not you're um, a Latino, whether or not you're Asian, whether or not you're Black, are looking at uh, college as being a mechanism for economic mobility. And so therefore, colleges are broadening out. And so at the end of the 19th century, what you're seeing, particularly for African-Americans, is a conflict, a conflict, two different things coming together. You have Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, which codifies legal segregation in the country, which basically turns African-Americans into uh, legal second-class citizens on, you know, across the country. Um, but you're also seeing things, for example, amongst Latinos, you see the Spanish-American War, uh, you see, uh, I mean, you're starting to see uh, Latino fraternities are starting to, uh, to, to pop up around 1896 or so. Um, you start to see Chinese fraternities, um, at, for example, at Berkeley. I think the first one is at Berkeley in like the early 1900s. Um, but amongst African-Americans, what you're starting to see is uh, this notion that a college education is, um, is, is imperative in order to prove oneself as a first-class citizen in this country. Um, if you have a society in which second-class citizenship is thought to be the, um, the standard and inferiority is a natural thing in America, well, the one thing that you want to do is you want to create uh, organizations that move beyond the idea that I am just a college-educated person. No, the group of people are actually uh, first-class citizens. And so when you start to see the growth of African-American fraternities and sororities on campus, you have what you would call uh, this notion of people being race men and race women. This idea that I am not just here to get uh, a college education in the same way most Americans and in American individualism is, I get my college education, I go do my professional profession, I live my, you know, my family and live my life, and it's only for me. 
It's more about, I represent something more. And whether or not you're talking about, you know, uh, African-American fraternities or African-American sororities, it's about like-minded people saying that we have a collective um, need to not only enrich ourselves, but to destroy the obstacles in front of us. And that's the reason why you'll see organizations uh, like, you know, the AKAs uh, going in the mid-1930s, uh, going into the Mississippi Delta, uh, uh, Ida Jackson, going in there and starting the Mississippi Health Project. Um, you'll see Delta Sigma Theta, the first thing that they do is they go on a suffragette march, literally almost after they're founded. Um, you, see, you see that, you know, Alpha Phi Alpha Volus People is a Hopeless People in the 1920s. You see that activism, and the activism is the thing that pretty much sets us apart. You know, it's interesting, one of the critiques that, that I often hear of NPHC groups is that there's a lot of status wrapped up in wearing those letters, and, and in hearing you talk about it, it makes sense from a historical lens that that really was a signifier that you had been to college, you were college educated, being able to wear those letters, that really did give you status, I would imagine, not only in the, in the black community, but just in society generally, right, because the assumption would be made I went to college, right? Which is not something that a lot of people could say at that time. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, think about today. Even today, it's only around 38% of Americans go to college, even though it, it feels like college is ubiquitous. Um, but it's only a small percentage. Going back then, it's even a, a smaller amount. Now, black people have been going to college universities, you know, since the early parts of, uh, you know, the, the, I think the early parts of the, the 19th century. I think the first uh, black student we see is like at Albion College. Um, we've seen interracial, uh, you know, campuses like at Berea College in Kentucky before the Civil War, mm -hmm. which is still amazing to me. Um, I have, I have you, some relatives who went to Berea. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. see them. I mean, and, and they, you know, they, they can say that. But a lot of times, even you not know, just with black uh, students, you Jewish students, uh, most minorities, they were under, under quota for, most, uh, for the most part if they were going to predominantly white institutions. Historically, black colleges and universities really became kind of the mechanism for not only, sometimes, for example, like Tuskegee, which where the idea was kind of a combination of uh, classical education along with a industrial education mm -hmm. um, versus like the Howard universities, which were, look, we're going to give you a classical education. Uh, these were kind of the mechanisms, like you said, there was a lot of status centered around that. If you go to like the who's who's, you know, you know each year, uh, you will oftentimes see church, you know, the church affiliation, um, Masonic Lodge affi affiliation, along with the fraternity and then the sorority affiliation. That was kind of like a package. It was like a, almost like a LinkedIn of the uh, early 20th century to say who and what you were in terms of your status in the community. And there were, there were private black colleges prior to the Civil War, but then the, the Morrill Land Grant Act, the second act really establishing publicly funded black colleges in the 1860s, which is when we really started to see the, the proliferation of those institutions providing access to, to more and more people. Yeah, and you see that a lot of times, a lot of the schools to this day are still tangentially or actively tied to religious denominations. Mm -hmm. um, usually they were able to take the lead uh, in terms of being able to say, we're gonna establish this. And a lot of them, depending on where they were, were a combination of continuing school, to high school, to, uh, to full-fledged colleges. We have to remember it, it was for, you know, for the 8 million formerly enslaved Africans who were emancipated, teaching uh, black people to, to read was a, uh, was a crime. And so you're talking about people 
who were amazingly educated in a very, very fast way. Colleges was that other mechanism. So one of the things that we research, Lawrence, as you know, are, are these concepts of brotherhood and sisterhood. Um, and, and so we've, you know, our initial studies focus primarily on uh, IFC panhellenic groups, but we've began kind of expanding that work and doing some qualitative work with culturally based groups. Obviously brotherhood and sisterhood are at the root of the founding of these organizations. What do those words mean within the context of NPHC organizations? And, and do you think that members of the divine nine think about brotherhood and sisterhood differently than, than people like myself who are in historically white organizations? Well, I think we, that's a good question. I think we think we think of brotherhood and sisterhood differently uh, than IFC and, and Panhellenic, mainly because oftentimes we don't know that much about IFC and Panhellenic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get my, my one impression. experience, you know, the, the, the one thing that I pull from my time working with NPHC groups as a campus-based advisor is they think they do everything differently. And sometimes oh, yeah. they're right, but not always. <laughs> it's amazing to, to a lot of times when I talk to NPHC students, and you tell them some of the origins of the things that they thought they, you know, that they had created. Yeah. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, you that. That. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's the reason why, like a lot of the conferences that we go to are illuminating for them. Yeah. Uh, but it's illuminating for IFC and Panhellenic too, sure. because they go and they're like, Oh, I didn't know you all did this. And you know, it's the exact same things. Um, for brother and sisterhood, I think in terms of the kind of almost a cliche now, is that we look at our membership as being not ending when we uh, graduate from college, uh, meaning that our is a life, you know, it's a lifetime brotherhood. Uh, um, there's a notion that you know we never are were we are always is. Um, now that always has caveats um, in terms of the you know when you're talking about what is the true brotherhood versus the true sisterhood. Oftentimes, I always talk about, you know, MPAC organizations are in the experience business. Forget everything else. We're in the experience business. We're in the business of providing you with an experience that is sticky, when I mean in terms of sticky. Oftentimes on a college campus, I'm talking about, you know, we don't have very large chapters, uh, typically, on college campuses. Uh, my chapter at Berkeley was a very rare type of chapter. We had 30 to 35 brothers in our chapter on a regular basis, you know going down to 25 or so, we never need it. But, the, but, but when we talk about, for most chapters, you're talking about a chapter between seven to 15. And so if you're on a college campus and you're gonna be with those brothers or with those sisters for approximately nine months if you're a junior to maybe about 36 months if you are a, a freshman, you're going to have experiences almost on a day-to-day -day basis. And those experiences are going to be the things that create the brotherhood um, or the sisterhood. Um, it's hilarious because I think about the fact that, uh, you know, I'm in the alumni chapter, obviously, right? And we meet once a month. And I used to think that was insane. You know, as a college brother, I was like, who in the world would meet once a month? We met every week as a, as a college chapter. I could never meet with my fraternity brothers once a week today, you know, in, in terms of just the ideal. But as a college brother, Brotherhood and sisterhood is based upon all those intense experiences that you have during that period of time. And what happens is it, it, it kind of exponentially builds upon itself because people are having those same experiences and what you're doing is you're constantly exchanging. When you do that, what happens is that the bonds that you get with uh, each you know, person who's a member of your organization uh, then becomes 
one beyond just being in a club. You know, you really do, you've seen the ups and downs, you've seen the highs and lows, and you, you really do care for that person. Um, I'm not necessarily sure because I've never been in a pan, you know, Panhell or IFC organization, but I always think Panhell and IFC tend to get a short shift on their, uh, on the brotherhood and sisterhood, mainly because you all's dynamic in terms of alumni chapters is not, you know, the same as how ours is set up. Yeah. Um, but that does not necessarily mean I've seen some outstanding and amazing sisterhood and brotherhood being done by brothers who have long been off college campus. Yeah, it's a structural thing, but the, the, the relationship, those dynamics are still there for sure. I, you, as you were talking, I was thinking about the focus groups we have done with, with NPHC members, men and women. And I think, you know, when you think about our research and the different scheme of the different ways of thinking about brotherhood and sisterhood, the underlying schema are the same, right? There's the shared social experience. There's the sense of belonging. There's the sense of solidarity. There's a sense of accountability. Those are all there, right? And and that's just group dynamics. Generally, we just have a word for it. We just call it brotherhood and sisterhood, but you could study those concepts in a church or a civic group or any other sort of salient organization that you would be part of. But there are a few differences in terms of how they manifest themselves, right? So for example, the social aspect of brotherhood and sisterhood in the white fraternities and sororities is much more revolving around the party scene. Right, Whereas right. with the NPHC groups, they party some, but it's totally different, right? It's not as much about that. Well, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> that's another thing. It, it, it could be the, 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 the stereotypical IFC panelonic is the Thursday party, you know, with, you know, alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mainly because we see that because they have houses. Mm. You know, so therefore it's easy to see yeah. that kind of manifest. You don't see the, the African-American or the NPAC party because there's alcohol. Do not yeah. believe me. There's alcohol. But it's not ma- you don't see that as a stereotype due to the fact that most of the time you don't see us in houses. Right. Um, but but in terms of how we actually get together, it does not necessarily center around alcohol. Right. Um, <clears throat> it's almost as though IFC and Panhellenic when you first, it, it, before you, when you first get on campus, that is what you think is going to be the expectation for bonding in terms of, that is not the expectation for bonding for uh, MPAC right. organizations. For MPAC organizations, oftentimes the people who are attracted to us are the people who are looking for something. Um, they're looking for, um, it could be the, the literal brother or sister, it could be looking for a connectivity to their black experience. Mm-hmm. It could be looking to having a social circle on a campus where they're only 5% or 10% of the campus. So there's a sense of security there. Um, it could be a sense of cool. Most, you know, I was social about most, status pieces. It, it, it cuts across all the organizations, right? All the organizations, but in particular for black students, because if you're getting on a college campus, and you're going to a, a flagship school like a Michigan or University of Alabama, Tennessee, and the like, what's going to happen is that you're typically, you, you were the nerdy person, you know, <laughs> on high school campus. I don't care how cool you thought you were. And when you get on a college campus, this is your opportunity to actually have some type of status. It, all those things are a mishmash. But I wouldn't say, definitely wouldn't say, and, and this is probably maybe one little thing that's a little subtle difference. If... For example, I wonder what would happen if IFC and Panel had deferred recruitment like NPAC organizations always have. Yeah. Instead of a first semester, you know, freshman 
coming in and, 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 and being initiated versus how NPAC organizations do it. I was a second semester uh, freshman. Yeah. That's, Who that joins, very, why they join, how they join. Yeah, absolutely. Be, that, that could drastically change that dynamic. I, I was talking with Brian Warren about this and really looking at all the problems that, that early, as soon as you get to campus going through that formal rush process, the type of people that attracts and then the messages that that sort of process reinforces about the, the, the heft of the decision to join one of these, you know, lifelong organizations. And we're going to give you four days and, you know, 20 minutes worth of conversations to make the decision. Come on, come on, man. This is, this is the thing that I, that I found uh, earlier this year. Some, I'm not going to say who it was, told me that some of the uh, IFC organizations are recruiting as early as senior year. Oh, absolutely. And I, I had, that blew me away. It's They're a campus thing. You know, it, it's, it's those big, it, it, big state schools like Alabama. It's a big thing at Alabama. Each fraternity has a pipeline into different high schools, right? So there are, you know, a couple of fraternities that have the Birmingham pipeline or the Montgomery pipeline or absolutely. the Mobile pipeline. And they, they recruit those kids who they know are coming up and they start recruiting them. Yeah. Halfway through senior year, they're inviting them up to football games you know, all of their senior year, doing events over the summer. It's wild. It's crazy. That is insane. Yeah. That is insane. I mean, I mean, you know, when we give our scholarships, you know, as a, as a, you know, alumni chapter, you know, we're not sitting up here. In fact, I don't think it really pops up. We're like, oh, you know, you know, the, you know, when we give you the scholarship, you better pledge out. <laughs> you know, <we're> like, <laughs> we hope you do. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. We just, but no, but you know, we have, you know, one of the other things, you know, that I see in terms of similarity and difference with, with brotherhood and sisterhood, and I was talking with Crystal Garcia about this. Do you know Crystal? I think I do, but I'm the, I'm the world's worst person when it comes to it's remembering like she, she's a She's a professor at, at Auburn, and she's written a lot on sense of belonging, specifically studying Latina sororities. And, 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 and part of what we talked about, I, I think, is, is true here in that one of the other differences is that belonging – is something that is provided again across the board. All fraternities and sororities provide that sense of belonging. We tend to see it higher in culturally based groups specifically because of two things. One being the, the cultural element. You're coming from an underrepresented minority on that campus. And so there's not a lot of people like you. So finding that place where people look like you can relate to you can understand you provides more of a sense of connection and right. more of a sense of home. And, and then the other one, and, and it, it's fairly straightforward and it's a, you know, some people see it as a plus, some people see it as a negative, but the chapters are smaller, right? When you, I, I think about, yeah. we're talking about Alabama, those sororities have 400 members, right? Like you're, you don't feel any intimate connection. You've got to work just as hard in a group of 400 people to fill your niche and, and find out where it is. Whereas in a, you know, your group was one of the bigger ones at, at 35 brothers consistently. Most NPHC groups we see on campus, anywhere from 15 to 25 members, some smaller than that. Right. It really does begin to feel like a family when you're with a group that small and just the intimacy that comes from the relationships in that way. Yeah. Because I mean, think about it. I mean, if you're coming into a campus that, you know, that is about, let's say, typical campus for minority is going to be about five to ten percent. You know, so you, you, this is your reality every day you wake up and you go on campus. The one, the last thing you want to do is then go to a uh, a Panhellenic or IFC organization where now you're two percent of the of the population. 
Um, I always remember this uh, one young man who I loved to death. He was a member of Sigma Phi Epsilon at LSU. And I, I really do love him to death because he was really trying. And he was saying, he said, uh, Mr. Ross, I'm trying to integrate, you know, our chapter. He said, I have done everything. I have, rec I've gone out and, you know, gone to, you know, uh, the Black Student Union, you know, made a presentation. I was like, oh, look at you. He went, uh, found some people. I found two guys. I was able to get them a scholarship from one of our alumni. I talked to their grandmother. <laughs> and he said, you know, he, no lie, he had done. And he said, I got him all the way to the finish line and they wouldn't go over it and they wouldn't cut across the finish line. I said, I said, look, that's fantastic. You did what you're supposed to do. That is what we talk about as affirmative. You did something proactively. Mm -hmm. Action. You took action. I said, but let me ask you a question. How many men, men do you have in your, in your uh, chapter? He was like around a hundred. I said, so you're going to have two black guys in the midst of 100 white guys. How comfortable do you think they feel? And he was like, I never thought about it like that. And I, <laughs> so here you have an earnest try to do this. Right. But the problem is, is that, it, you, and, and my big belief always has been, you find fraternalism where you, you find fraternalism. So I'm a, I'm a big advocate for people not having to simply become NPAC or NALFO um, or, uh, or, or, or NASPA, you know, because they just decide, you know, on based on their race or ethnicity. If you find your, your fraternalism at SIGEP or, you know, CAPSIG, whatever you, that's perfectly fine. Um, but there's also those hurdles in terms of how people are going to look at themselves and say, well, what type of fraternalism am I going to get out of this? What components am I going to lack? And am I going to feel comfortable in this? And not everyone is going to always feel comfortable, you know, in, in IFC or Panhellenic organizations. And, it, it, and it, the word comfort is really what matters there, right? Like there are people of, of all stripes and all walks of life who, based on the neighborhood they grew up in, the high school they went to, the sports teams they played on, who are going to be more or less comfortable with people maybe from different races from their own. Right. And, and at the end of the day – you're choosing to be part of a group of people that feels like home, right? That, and so that, that comfort level is a big piece of that. Exactly. And, you're, and even some of it I always talk about in terms of fraternalism, a lot of times what we do is we try to craft the family that we wish we had. Mm. You know, in terms of, so oftentimes you'll have people, going back to what we're talking about in terms of NPAC organizations, you'll sometimes have people say, I really wished I had grown up you know, in this particular part. I can't replicate this experience. Mm -hmm. So for example, I'm from Inglewood, California, which is kind of like part of the whole big South Central Los Angeles area. Um, and a ton of people from Inglewood moved out to the suburbs, right? Now those kids are now starting to come on college campuses. They don't have the exact same learned experience as I do, but it doesn't make my cultural experience better than them, but they, you know, are attracted to the idea of being within something that connects them to. So for example, they may not have gone to my family church. They may have gone to a church out in, you know, the suburbs and no one's ever heard of, but this is a chance for them to now reconnect in a, in a chapter and then go to a church and go and pick up those cultural cues that really does kind of fulfill something internally to them. But on the other hand, you may have a black or a Latinx student who grew up in the suburbs and is like, I like that whole place. I love that experience. When I get on campus, I want that experience. These are people I'm used to. And, um, I'm, you know. And, and as long as there's no barriers for that to happen, which we saw at a lot of campuses for a long time, we're seeing certainly much less of that now. Right. But, uh, 
yeah, like whatever makes you comfortable. Well, the, but, the, but the problem a lot of times right now is that the barriers that we, you know, obviously have been, you know, marked down. We don't have any more, you know, racial covenants and things like that in, in the constitutions. But oftentimes what is happening is you'll see students in those organizations. They, I always talk about the fact that a lot of times you'll see students of color who love their chapter and really don't like the, you know, the, extent, you know, the extended organization. Right. Or they'll get frustrated because they don't see themselves being seen. Yeah, uh, within a chapter because there's not really much structure within an IFC or panhellenic organization to see people of color. It, it would be fascinating to study that initial group. I mean, I think about my experience at Alabama and really breaking the the color barrier there, particularly within the panhellenic sororities, to go in and study qualitatively that first generation of women of color who 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 pledged historically white sororities and what their experience was like compared to the women who are joining those chapters now uh, because so, it, it had to be different, right? Well, so, so I am too, you, you, I know you are the quant person. Um, I'm trained in quality. <laughs> so, uh, and so I used to um, work in grad school. I used to work for this company called Iconoculture where we did qualitative studies of, you know, demographics and things like that. And so I tend to dig the deeper dive into uh, the behavior values, you know, and, and see, you know, create trends basically on that macro trends basically. Um, and from my research in terms of talking to them, there's kind of a double-edged sword. For example, I talked to, and you know, I'm gonna be speaking to Delta Gamma, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Delta Gamma conference, in, if it happens, in, in June. Uh, and I, one of the people I talked to in uh, my book, Black Ball, was uh, Pat uh, Patricia Hamilton Jai. She was Patricia Hamilton at the time. And talked to her about her experience. It was a classic experience of, uh, wanting to pledge Delta Gamma in the early 60s, gets, gets rejected. And I asked her, you know, just talk to her. And that woman has to be in her 80s right now. And she is still hurt. She is absolutely still hurt by not necessarily the rejection of, you know, not being in Delta Gamma, but the idea that she had been judged simply on the color of her skin, you know? So I would be interested in that. I, it, I was at the last uh, AFLV. And I went to a workshop with uh, two black women who are in Panel. And they were doing a kind of a life in Panel for black women. I would be amazed if, if the first generation of folks uh, had a better experience than what they're having. Because what they're talking about are the, the same kind of issues that I heard, you know, going back 60 years. Yeah. You know. the, 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 the last thing about brotherhood and sisterhood that I want to touch on before I move on, and I do want to talk about Blackballed, your, your most recent project. One of the things that we found that was really even a differentiator between IFC and Panhellenic was that for the women in Panhellenic, there's this dimension of sisterhood related to common purpose. And it's this idea that part of what draws us together is being a group of women working together. You know, really, and, and it's, it, part of it is based in the marginalized identity of being a woman and it traces its roots to their historical founding where they were, you know, early on in the days of co-education, no one wanted them there. And it's like, Hey, we've got to be here for each other and support one another so that future generations of women will have the same opportunity. So there was a, a strong sense of purpose mm -hmm. in their founding that continues to this day. And, and you will hear women talk about that when you ask them to talk about sisterhood. And when you talk to white fraternity men, 
they don't talk about common purpose, right? right. And I think that's because of the privileged identity of being a white man that it may be somewhere there in your mind, but you don't think about it through those terms because you don't have to. Nothing in your life forces you but, to think about it in that way. But, but I remember, think if, when we do a full study of brotherhood within NPHC fraternities, based on the initial work that we've done and some of the focus groups, you see common purpose show up with men in NPHC organizations, again, coming from that marginalized identity and that service based um, uh, initiative that, that really was at the heart of their founding that mm -hmm. you don't see with, with the historically white fraternity members. Well, you remember, you know, IFC organizations prior to, you know, pre -civil, you know prior to the Civil War were basically founded as almost like rebellion against the camps. Yeah. You know, the whole idea was basically we're, we're tired of this, um, you know, this, you know, calculus theology, you know, philosophy, Latin, you know, type of structure. And, you know, we're going to be the outliers on campus. We're rebelling. We have a space over here. Um, and then as alumni, as IFC alumni became more and more powerful, you know, they began to have more and more power uh, on college campuses. So there's really kind of for, for IFC organizations, the idea of service is kind of like slapped on. Not to say that IFC doesn't do some wonderful things, but it's not organic to who, what IFC even began as. Right. Um, Panhellenic, I always talk about, yes, Panhellenic has the same marginalization. I always talk about Panhellenic. Pan, I love Panhellenic because if you tell Panhellenic what the issue is, <laughs> Panhellenic will organize in 15 minutes. <laughs> as long as they got t-shirts, everything is good. <laughs> you know, so, so there's a, 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 an idea of action amongst Panhellenic that you don't necessarily see with IFC. When you talk about MPAC fraternities and sororities, particularly MPAC fraternities versus uh, IFC, IFC fraternities, every last one of us was founded with the principle of, you know, underneath the, um, the, um, the rubric of oppression. Uh, the, you know, the seven founders of Alpha Phi Alpha, you know, two of which worked in white fraternity uh, houses, you know, in order to uh, pay their tuition. Um, they clearly understood what was going on. The 10 founders of Kappa Alpha Psi, you know, were in Indiana University. They clearly understood. I mean, remember, Kappa Alpha Psi was Kappa Alpha Nu. They had to change the name because people were changing the N into, you know, to, a, uh, to an expletive, and they changed it to Kappa Alpha Psi. So, you know, they were going through. So these are people, going back to that whole point about being race men and race women, who had clear consciousness of the fact that they weren't afforded the American individualism that we so to, you know, we saw so laud. You know, yes, they were individual achievers, but that individual achievement meant nothing if, if, unless, you know, basically it was a collective uh, achievement. So therefore the purpose of every, you know, if you ask the, the newest alpha who has just been initiated uh, about a couple of weeks ago, he will look at you and he will think of himself as a little mini Martin Luther King. He's <laughs> 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 just a Martin Luther King in training. And that's, you know, that's what we try to do. And that's the emphasis within all of our organizations. Um, I couldn't imagine, I could not imagine a, an NPAC organization that didn't have that at their heart. So your most recent project, uh, Blackballed, the Black and White Politics of Race on America's Campuses, uh, obviously deals with a, a similar but different topic. And you've right. been delivering a lot of lectures uh, around the country, specifically dealing with race and racism mm -hmm. in fraternities and sororities. Um, what inspired that work? And, and in the, the few years since you've written the book and uh, begun the lectures, 
do you see things getting better, worse, or, or staying about the same? So that book was inspired uh, by when I was doing, I've been doing, uh, I've been lecturing about the Divine Nine since 2000. And about 2010, I, around then, I can't really uh, pinpoint it, but 2010 or so, um, I started getting students who would come up to me after the lecture and talk about their experiences at the school. And this wasn't one of those things where it was a, you know, a bitch and moan type of deal. This was where people were visibly, deeply upset mm -hmm. about the fact that the university wasn't really meeting their needs. And at first I was wondering whether or not it was just kind of anecdotal. And I was just thinking, well, maybe it's just this cohort of, you know, millennials and, you know, their, you know, their feelings. Um, but I began thinking, well, let's make, take a deeper dive into the campus atmosphere itself and go beyond there, you know, beyond, you know, today, because that's kind of a newspaper article. Um, and let's see, dig deep to 1946, uh, because 1946 is basically right, right around the time where universities began demanding um, uh, the uh, IFC and Panhellenic to, to, to take out, you know, racial clauses out of, their, uh, out of their constitutions. And I started digging, and then I was kind of like, well, let me stop taking these uh, incidents that we see on Halloween and Black History Month and, um, and Cinco de Mayo out of us isolated incidents. And let's just lay them out. Let's lay them out and see how many occur. So I had a, uh, a cork board where every time I found an incident, I would you know, do all my research, you know, JSTOR, I'd go down to newspapers, newspapers, and then I start going into uh, yearbooks and stuff. And I had a cork board for every last one and my cork board filled. So I got another cork board and that one filled. And it got to the point where I was like, okay, now I just have to do this digital. When all these old blackface pictures of politicians started resurfacing, you were the least surprised person in America. I had, at the beginning of the year, I had sent out a tweet. Someone had said, what do you want journalists uh, to cover? And I said, I want you all, this is before Northam, I want you all to stop being surprised when you find blackface in yearbooks. And sure enough, yeah, no, of course not. I could, I could, I could still tell them where the blackface pictures are. They're there in plain sight. It's not. This was not anything that was extraordinary. It's just that what we did was we ignored it and we thought that it was in the past, and we didn't know that there was actually the strain and the connection uh, within IFC and Panhellenic that perpetuated this. And this was the, the beginning of my book. Was basically the initial book that I was going to be doing was centered specifically over on IFC and Panhellenic. But um, one of my, it's it, through St. Martin's Press, my editor to her credit was like, let's broaden this out. And I'm glad she did because when I broadened it out, then it became much more evident that it was a very much a systemic and a foundational issue for predominantly white institutions. Um, that's when it really kind of made all the sense. And it moved beyond kind of like the idea that way beyond the idea. And, and kind of my goal was to get people beyond the idea of thinking that these are individual things. Because we can compartmentalize individual uh, students doing individual things and say to ourselves, don't have a responsibility, nothing foundational. And I'm, you know, if you've ever seen my lecture, uh, my lecture is, is, is the Marshawn Lynch um, theory <laughs> of, of lectures, is that you have to present examples over and over and over and over and over yeah. and so the lecture is designed to make you understand or to get out of your brain that this is just individual incidents and it's not oh my god i i 
this is still what you see in the book is approximately, I'd say about 25 to 30% of, of all the things I've seen. And it, and it really, Lawrence, speaks to the need of education around this topic. You, anytime you and I talk about this, I think about two very different incidents that happened a couple hundred miles apart, but within the same year of one another. Uh, the, the incident in Auburn in the late 90s with the, the Klan robes and the Confederate flags. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The corner culture and the Halloween party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah totally. And then I think about when I was a student at the University of Tennessee, um, some kids who were a member of another historically white fraternity went to a Halloween party as the Jackson Five and, and wow. did blackface. One of those incidents was done out of sheer ignorance. The other one out of hatred, right? No, no one shows up with a Confederate flag and a Klan robe and a noose right. in a spirit of good fun, right? No. And, and there's so much ignorance still, right? Yeah. And I, I think I didn't receive any education on, on blackface or on racial uh, issues at all when I joined a fraternity at the University of Tennessee. Just It wasn't discussed. It didn't come up. I knew on freshman council some people who ended up in NPHC organizations, I can still remember going to my first probate. I went to an Omega probate and they're, you know, coming in with their lanterns and all chained up. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I'm the only white dude there. What have I gotten myself into? But I had to learn these things on my own. Right. And and, and it really speaks to the importance of having these conversations. And so I know uh, a lot of people, myself included, just value so much the perspective that you bring because you have done that homework you're able to share all those anecdotes, but you do it in a way that's, that's not judgmental. It's loving, it's caring, it's, it's educational, it's developmental. And we need that so badly in our communities. Well, I mean, I, I, mean, my, I, mean, I know it sounds, it's loving, I'm pretty sure it's loving, but you know, I also, it's blunt. It's, it's, it's very blunt. blunt. It's tough love. It's Dr. Phil. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and we basically, have, we have the same literary age, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, the, it's done bluntly because one of the things I, I recognize I remember before I did my lectures, uh, before I started my lectures, uh, I was trying to figure out how I was going to craft the lecture. And uh, we're both part of, you know, Facebook groups, you know, with many folks in them. And uh, that center around. No, no names. No, we don't, we no don't, names. we no don't names. do names. Yeah, no names. Yes. Um, and, but one of the things I always knew that it was that F, uh, a Panhellenic at ISC never talked about race. Never. And it, I say during my lecture, ISCs and Panhellenic's ethos had pretty much been uh, we were bad in the past. We're good now. Live your values. And I apologize if that message right there offended you. And we will never do it again. And th- those are the things of you cannot then be surprised that every four or five years, you're going to have a churn of white students who arrive on campus and do the exact same behaviors. Mm-hmm. Now, as I tell students, ISC and Panhellenic students, you're not responsible for what happened in the past. But you're damn sure responsible what happens right now. Mm-hmm. And too often what happened was that we would have all the most the pretty infographics, you know, telling them what they should do for a party and what they shouldn't do. And the students basically continued to feel that they were pretty immune to all that because, well, who's going to catch them? And, the, the, you know, we were talking about like the cultural appropriation for like the Jackson 5 versus the, um, uh, the, the Beta Theta Pi at uh, University, uh, University of, uh, at Auburn. Um, yes, they're not the same in terms of the scale, but they're on the scale. They're both on the scale. To, re- to recognize. Yep. Um, the, the, the problem is, and I, I, I talk about this in the lecture, I don't really blame any student um, due to the fact we do a terrible job between K to 12 talking about race and racism. 
Uh, so we then expect them to understand race and racism on, on college campuses. Uh, I always like to tell this one story. Uh, I was at Campbell University at, uh, in North Carolina. And I don't know if you remember this, but uh, one of the Campbell students was uh, the, the founder of the, of the uh, Students for Trump at Campbell University. And uh, suddenly I got a whole bunch of Kappa Alphas who were following me on Twitter. I was like, when did I start becoming popular with Kappa Alphas? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the Winston-Salem newspaper uh, sent an email and they asked me, um, was I, you know, I had said that uh, Trump was a white supremacist and he is. And I, you know, they asked me whether or not I was, uh, did I still believe that? And I said, of course. <laughs> and they said, well, are you gonna say that at uh, the, you know, your election? I was like, of course, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I come to Campbell University and um, the, the student newspaper had a editorial. The editor had an editorial said that Campbell University was the, I think the, let's say 35th most conservative university in the country. And so therefore I shouldn't have come. And I thought that was gold. So I went and found out that list and found out who was on that list. And so I get there and yeah. all Kappa Alpha, and the president who was president, the student of Trump, all in the third row. And I told him, I said, hey, you know something? Uh, after I do my normal introduction, I go, y'all said that I should, you know, have to leave and, you know, maybe I should go. But then I was like, let me look at this list and see who are the people before you in terms of conservative organizations. And I put together a new list of the, the conservative universities uh, that Lawrence Ross has visited that survived my, my lecture. And it was about, you know, like, Clemson three times and all that. And have, like, have you been to Liberty? I've been waiting to go to Liberty. Go to Liberty. I don't want to go during the, the coronavirus because I know that they're all meeting right now. They know coronavirus at Liberty. They're going to pray it away. They're going to pray it away. But if they ask me to come to Liberty, I will go to Liberty. I would. I would pay good money to see you and uh, and Jerry Falwell debate. That would be. That would be fantastic. I will be there. If Liberty, if you want me there, let me know. If but anyone from Liberty is listening, here, here's yeah, your opportunity. <laughs> but the one thing that I do want to point out, uh, after that lecture, one member of Kappa Alpha came up to me and uh, near the end. And he said, uh, he came over and he said, Mr. Ross, I just want to say um, what they told me was wrong. Uh, you know, what they, you know, my, my president told me was wrong. He said, I grew up in white kid, white kid, rural. He said, I grew up in uh, a, a, a town where there were two high schools. One high school was Latino and one was all white. And he said, I could never for the life of me understand why the white school had everything, we didn't have anything. And he said, this was the only lecture in my, my life that someone actually told me something that, about how I was affected. He said, I appreciate it. And that's, what, that's the reason why you do it. That's literally the reason why you do it. That's awesome. Lawrence, you and I could go on for a while. Um, time requires that we not do that. Uh, Lawrence, again, the author of The Divine Nine, A History of African-American Fraternities and Sororities, and Blackballed, The Politics of Race on American College Campuses. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, and, and good luck with everything uh, the, the rest of the summer. Stay safe out there. Thanks, man. Always a pleasure, man. My conversation with Lawrence really has me thinking about my own education in this industry. There's a lot that I didn't know about race and racism when I began this work as a graduate student in 2002, and there is still a lot that I don't know. 
But in order to learn, we need to be having conversations with people who are different from us about topics that make us uncomfortable. And white people, it's our turn to just stop and listen. We don't need to be putting ourselves at the center of this conversation. Now is a time for humility and empathy. Our conversation also got me thinking about how Dyad is contributing to addressing some of these issues. At Dyad, we have not released any statements related to diversity and inclusion because we want to make sure that the things that we say and do have real meaning. We know that we have work to do, and I want to update everyone on some of the things that we're already working on and are committed to doing in the coming year. First, we're doing a wide-ranging diversity and inclusion data analysis for all of our organizational clients looking at the most granular level to help our organizational partners better understand the experiences that members of color are having in their predominantly white organizations. Secondly, we're committed to adding people of color to our team, both on the research side of the house as well as the programming side. We've been actively engaged in expanding our research into culturally based groups, but it's time for us to put our money where our mouth is and have people of color on our team helping us do that work. Lastly, we're committed to publishing research in the next year that examines questions of racism and inclusion in historically white fraternities and sororities. We have mountains of data related to race, openness to diversity, and social justice attitudes, and we're committed to publishing research in the next year that will advance that conversation in those areas. We know these things are just a start, and there is always more that we can do, so we'll continue to listen to our constituents and clients and figure out the best ways for Dyad to contribute to progress in this area. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, a production of Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.